Martin was born in 1491 in the city of Célestat in northern France. In 1507, he joined the Dominicans and took a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. He would visit the cities of Heidelberg in 1515 and Mainz in 1516, witnessing some of the Protestant Reformation that was going on, but rejecting it wholesale. But in January of 1517, as he was in Heidelberg and studying through until 1518, he attended an event where another Martin was there preaching, a, name by the na- a, a gentleman by the name of Martin Luther. And as Luther was teaching there and disputing in Heidelberg, he witnessed something quite incredible. There Luther asserted man's incapacity to do good denied free will, and set forth a new understanding of theology based on the cross, and proclaimed that salvation was by faith in Christ alone. As Martin observed Luther's teaching and considered it himself, his life that day was radically transformed. It was completely upended. Martin would eventually be excommunicated from the Catholic Church and asked to leave the city because of his Protestant leanings. As a poor refugee, Martin arrived in Strasbourg in 1523 where he would lead the Protestant Reformation there for over 25 years. Martin Busser was his name and, and he had an instrumental role He was the one who invited John Calvin to come and set up residence there and begin to preach and teach in Strasbourg. Their friendship would remain throughout their lives as Calvin often learned from Busser's thinking. Even some of our own understanding this morning of Sunday school and of church discipline comes from Martin's own thinking concerning Scripture and truth. What was it that he had learned from Luther that that transformed his life? What was the key that unlocked his mind concerning what was going on throughout Europe? Well, it was the biblical teaching that salvation, or justification that is, is by faith alone and not by anything that we do. That salvation is not by good works, but by trusting in the good works of another. The finished work of Jesus. You see, at the cross, the judging and saving righteousness of God, they meet. God is both Savior and Judge. Just and merciful. And in our justification, God declares sinners, like you and I, to be righteous or holy in His sight. A righteousness that is not our own, that's alien to us, that is outside of us, is given to us or imputed to us by by faith. By believing in the work of Christ. In our text this morning, Jesus will ask you a probing question. He has a question that he once lodged in your mind. When he comes again, will he find faith on earth? When he comes again, will he find faith on earth? Now, why does Jesus ask that? 
Because faith in Him is the only means by which we may be saved. Only by trusting in Christ will you be saved from God's wrath. Friend, this is what we want to think about this morning in our text. Now, Jesus, we are told in verse 11, as I read in just a moment, is continuing His journey toward Jerusalem. And Luke uses this as a literary and theological motif. In all of His teachings and preaching, Jesus did not merely teach that He was, or rather, He did not merely teach good moral lessons. So perhaps you're visiting with us this morning, you know a little bit about Christianity, and your understanding of Christianity is simply this, that Jesus was a good teacher and a good guy. He was a good guy, He, He never did anything bad, He did everything really, really well in His life, And he was an example of of how you and I should be. We should be good because Jesus was good. And he also was a really good teacher. I mean, after all, he had an itinerant preaching ministry where he traveled all over Israel teaching really good stories about how you and I can be really good people. Friend, if that's your understanding of Jesus, there's so much more we want to help you think about this morning. Jesus was not merely one who taught good moral lessons, but even this hint about his journey to Jerusalem uh, reveals that Jesus did not come to tell good stories, that Jesus didn't come merely to live a good life. Rather, he came to die, to die the death that you and I deserve because of our sin and willful rebellion against God. That through the death of Christ that he would raise three days later. What we're celebrating today and what we call here in America Easter. But as Christians we call Resurrection Day. Friend, is the truth that Jesus is not dead but alive. That he rose three days later. Not as a, as a kind of parlor trick to show, ha, look, I, I can come back to life but rather as a seal of approval, vindicating that God accepted His sacrifice and that you and I can be saved if we will only trust in Him. Friend, with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Uh, if If you don't have a Bible or you're not accustomed to looking at the Bible, grab one of those black Bibles in front of you, the little black covered books, open it to page 876 and look for that giant number 17. And then pan your eyes to that page and find the little number 11. And again, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, take that Bible home with you today, read it. It is our gift to you. We want you to know God better through it. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11. Luke records that on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priest." And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his feet 
at Jesus's, or excuse me, he fell on his face at Jesus's feet, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Who seeks to, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two, two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And he told them a parable to the effect that that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a woman in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this, this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Friend, I read that all together so that you could see in your mind that there is one consistent theme running throughout, and that is the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And one of the things we, we see in this text so clearly, the main idea, is that Christ has inaugurated the kingdom of God, yet it is not fully consummated. What does that mean? It means that we live in a period of history between the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God has come in the coming of the king. When Jesus arrived, he declared, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
was at hand because the king was there. The king had arrived. But the king is away. And so the king is preparing his kingdom. He is ushering his kingdom slowly and quietly in a way that is not observable by human eyes, but by the repentance of every sinner who bows their knee to King Jesus. Friend, in this way we see the kingdom of God beginning to march forward. And one of the things we understand by this text is that salvation has not yet fully come because the King has not returned. And that the posture of the Christian life is one of waiting. Waiting. Well, what are we waiting for? We are awaiting the return of Jesus. And every week we gather on the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of Christ and wait. Wasn't this week? Oh, it may be today. It might be tomorrow. It may be the next day. But we wait. And so what we understand in our text and the purpose of this sermon is to equip you, every one of you, for a day that is coming It is on God's calendar. The Father has said He has fixed it. And one day He will release His Son to return to this place, to this world. And the friend, the question for you is when He returns, will He find you believing? Will you be equipped for the impending return of Christ? Friend, we see in our text three ways we prepare for the return of Christ. Number one, in that story that we heard of the healing of those ten lepers, that we most fundamentally prepare for the return of Jesus by rejoicing that salvation has come. We'll understand in here in just a moment, so let me give you a bit of a preview, that when Jesus comes again, This will not be a day of rejoicing for some. Jesus has promised in His his Word that when He comes again, He will come not as Savior, but as Judge. And that He will judge the living and the dead. And so for you, it is only a day of rejoicing in so much as you have trusted in Christ for salvation. But we see secondly, as we consider there in the kind of heart of it in verses 20 through 37, that we as Christians trust that judgment day is coming. One of the, the core tenets of the Christian faith is that Jesus is coming again, and when he comes, he will come to judge. And we trust that. And third and finally, we'll see that we prepare for the return of Christ by praying persistently that it happens today. That it happens right now. That our days are taken up with prayer. With one singular prayer that overarches every other prayer. And that prayer is come today, Jesus. Come today. We are ready to go home. This journey has been too long. We are weary. We are worn. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, friend, these are the three points we want to consider. Number one, rejoice for salvation has come by faith. Jesus tells 
and record, rather Luke tells and records an interaction. Jesus is traveling. Now, no righteous and holy Jew would have chosen to do what Jesus did. But the point of the story that we're told in the healing of these ten lepers is, is tipped to us by Luke as he writes. Look with here at the text again. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. At the end of verse 16, there is a sentence there that, record, that Luke records. Now he was a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. And then Jesus' question that follows, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Now lest you attribute to Jesus some sort of racial motivation here, uh, his point is racially driven. In other words, the Jews despised the Samaritans. Because centuries earlier, the Samaritans who were Jews had intermarried with other nations, which was forbidden in the law. And they had become corrupt in their theology. That's why God had guarded them. And so the Jews despised them. They saw them as half-breeds. They had terrible words that they would call him, call them. Uh, they were a people outright despised. But Jesus chooses to go near to and pass along. Their Jews would literally go the long way around Samaria to go to Jerusalem in order to avoid this land. But Jesus chooses to go through it. And when he goes, he, he meets ten lepers. Now for you and I, who we live in an age that's uh, somewhat medically uh, minded, and, but, but perhaps you remember a couple years ago that dreaded COVID. Um, and, and I'm sure many of you faced this temptation as you went out into stores and, and various places and wondered, am I going to be exposed to this invisible virus? Is it going to get me? Well, that kind of revolt, that kind of welled up in you like, Ugh, I don't want that, those germs on me, was the, the kind of way that people lived among lepers. Lepers were social outcasts. They weren't allowed to socialize with others. They weren't allowed to go to the temple. They weren't allowed to participate in the congregation of God's people. They were the outsiders. And even in our text, we are told that they stood far off from Jesus. But Jesus here, we, we are told, commands them to go and, and to, to present themselves to the priest. Jesus is going to heal them without a word, without a touch. Jesus is going to miraculously heal these ten lepers. But only one of those lepers returns, and we are told it is a Samaritan. But the point of the whole story is not merely that he's a Samaritan, but that he comes to saving knowledge in Jesus. That the gospel is for outsiders. The gospel is for a surprising group of people. They're called the elect. That God has chosen to save a people, not merely ethnically, that is Jews, but that He has chosen to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He's come to save you, friend. Look here in the text, verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The word that Jesus uses here in this text, has made you well, you'll see there's a little footnote that the translators want you to understand that this verb has two meanings. Yes, it is true that 
he has been made physically well, that he's been healed of his leprosy, that no longer is he a leper, but that his body, every molecule, every inch of his body has completely and utterly been cleansed of his leprosy. But it also means that he was saved. That he came to saving knowledge of Jesus. That he recognized and honored Jesus not merely as a faith healer, but as the God who had formed his very DNA. The God who had ruled and reigned over creation. Just as it was displayed in this healing miracle that he was the creator. And that he could without a word miraculously transform his body. This is why he falls before him and cries out to him, giving him thanks. Because Jesus healed. The word that Jesus uses again means that this man was not merely healed, but saved. And notice he says, by faith. It wasn't anything that he had deserved. He didn't merit it. He didn't... He didn't do anything to to earn this salvation. It came to him by faith alone. And friend, the, the, the wonderful truth that we rejoice this morning is that as Christians, we have been saved from something far more terrible and futile than leprosy. We've been saved from our sin. What a wonderful truth that is. That we gather to rejoice that we know that our sin has been dealt with because Jesus died. That's what we're believing in. What we're putting our trust in. Not merely believing some historic facts about Jesus. Friend, do you understand if you're not a Christian this morning, uh, historians in the, the first century did not debate whether or not Jesus was real or not. They didn't debate whether or not, these are secular, non-Christian historians. They knew that Jesus was real, they knew that Jesus died, and they knew that something happened three days later, though they could not understand it. And they knew this one fact, that his followers believed that he was alive. J.C. Ryle writes this, Above all, let us pray for a deeper sense of our own sinfulness, guilt, and undeserving. This, after all, is the true secret of a thankful spirit. It is the man who daily feels his debt to grace and daily remembers that in reality, he deserves nothing but hell. This is the man who, who will daily bless and praise God. Friend, are you thankful this morning that God died the death that you deserved? And that He was raised for your justification? We read in the Bible. Friend, we rejoice this morning that salvation has come by faith. It is nothing that we earn, nothing that we merit. That the kingdom of God in this way has come. And so, as we consider this story, notice what follows in verses 20-37. through That we ought to trust that Jesus is coming again. Now I want you to consider this fact, the the aha moment here for you, Hope. Have you ever considered the second coming? Have you ever considered this one fact about it? That if Jesus is coming again, then, then Jesus is alive? I mean, dead people don't come again, do they? 
I mean, nobody, you've never seen that, have you? I mean, if you have, we can talk afterwards. No, dead people don't get out of graves and, and go away for thousands of years and then come back. Only people who are alive do those things. Only those people who, who truly are ascended come and return. Friend, this is the wonderful truth that Jesus is teaching. He, even in teaching his return, is anticipating his own resurrection. And so the Pharisees come to him and ask them, is the kingdom of God coming? Now you might wonder, well, why would they ask that question? It's because when they read their Old Testament Bibles, they understood that when the Messiah came, he would come to destroy God's enemies. And that is true. When the Messiah comes, He will destroy every single kingdom here on earth. And He will establish His kingdom, which will perpetuate into eternity. But the problem with the Pharisees is they got the timing wrong. They thought that when the Messiah came, it was a one and done deal. But Jesus revealed, no, 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 you have your timing all wrong. I've come today for salvation, then I'm coming back for judgment. And this is why Jesus says to them in verse 21, that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For the kingdom, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or it's within you or within your grasp. The point that Jesus is making is that the kingdom of God is not visible or tangible. You can't touch it, right? He doesn't have flags, all right? So, however cute this little thing is over here, that Jesus says that's not, that's not it. Right? It's not a place. You can't, go and, you can't go and find it, right? There's no territory, right? There's no, there's no kingdom here on earth. No, no, no. You see, the kingdom comes through transformed lives. As kingdom citizens are transferred from one kingdom to another, that's how the kingdom comes. And so there's a sense in which the kingdom is already, it's come, but it's not yet fully come. There is coming a day when Jesus will fully consummate His kingdom. And so Jesus is teaching His disciples here to live in the tension to live in the tension between the already and the not yet. To not grow weary or discouraged. That's why he says in verse 22, there's coming a day when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. In other words, you're going to miss me. And boy, do we miss Jesus. You're going to miss me. You're going to long to, to be with me. Remember those, those fireside chats that we had. You're going to long for those days, but, but those days aren't yet. And so Jesus here teaches His disciples not to be fooled. Do not be fooled, He says. There will, be, there will come those who will claim that My kingdom is at hand. Now, friend, if you've been around a while, you know back in the 1980s, uh, there was those who prophesied that, uh, that Jesus was coming in, in uh, 83 and 84 and 88. And, well, he didn't come, did he? And even for some of you younger ones, you know, around that turn of the century in 99 to 2000, everyone was kind of wondering, is this it? Is this going to be it? And it came and, and well, it went. But Jesus here makes the point 
that when the kingdom comes, it will be unmistakable. He uses an illustration. Look there in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. In other words, no one goes and witnesses lightning and says, oh, those must be the kids playing with the flashlights again. Or, oh, I think that was a UFO zooming through the sky. Again, if you do believe that, we can talk afterwards. No, 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 you understand when you see lightning, it's visible, it's unmistakable. You don't question it. When Christ comes, friend, it will be unmistakable. No one will be hidden from it. No one will hide under some proverbial rock and escape the judgment that is to come. We know also the kingdom will come in God's perfect timing. We ought to trust that His kingdom is coming. We ought to be ready. God has His timetable and He is bringing it about. That's what Jesus says there in verse 25. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. There's a sequence to the order in which God is doing things. Everything is orderly in God's economy. This is what Luke testifies to in Acts 2.23. That this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Everything. God has it all planned. But, and friend, this is the fearful reality that the kingdom of God comes unexpectedly. Not only will it be unmistakable, but Jesus says it will come unexpectedly. And he uses two illustrations from your Bible. The first one is that of Noah. Noah. The Bible tells us that God was so sick of man's rebellion that He judged this world and condemned the annihilation of every human being except for one family. Now, it wasn't because this one family was particularly holy, but they were more holy than other ones. And God commissioned Noah to build this ark, and and as he's building this ark over a, a long period of time, several years, perhaps even a decade, he's building and constructing this ark, and what's going on around him? Everybody's just like, no, what's going on with you, brother? Do you need help? You need to see a psychologist. Uh, what are you doing? There's no rain, Noah. What were they doing? They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. They were going about life as normal. Doing everything that a human being does. But then, judgment came. It caught them by surprise. It caught them unexpectedly. They cried out for salvation, but God did not save them. But we're told there in verse 27, destroyed them all. Well, that was one illustration. And then he tells another illustration. A number of years later, God would punish two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, You're familiar with Sodomites, uh, this idea of uh, very perverse people. Well, there was someone who lived there that God sought to save. And so, he, his name was Lot, and he was going to save Lot and destroy the whole city. And we're told that in, in the days leading up to the annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah, what did they do? Well, they did what everyone else does. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. In other words, they were just going about life. 
They were doing what you and I do every single day. They had no care in the world. But then, we're told fire and sulfur rained from heaven. God completely and utterly destroyed them. Perhaps even now you're wrestling with this particular God that could do this. Friend, don't miss this point as we consider them. They deserved it. Because they had rebelled against God, their creator. And because God created them, he has the right to do what he wants with his creation. Just like you have the right to do with the things you make, you can do with them what you will. But the point is, is that judgment came unexpectedly. And so it will be when Jesus returns. No one will be looking around saying, oh yeah, that happened and that happened and that happened. Jesus must come. And I know you're well-meaning when you say it. Oh, you know, Iran did this and, you know, Israel's doing this. And, well, Jesus must be coming again. Not according to Jesus, friend. According to what Jesus said with his own mouth, There will be nothing that will tip your hand to the fact He's coming again. Even His disciples taught in 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and destroyed and the earth and the works that are done in them be exposed. This is quite frightening. If the kingdom of God is coming unexpectedly, then the logic follows you better be ready for it. You better be prepared. And that is why Jesus concludes this by saying that the kingdom of, come, the kingdom of God comes urgently. It comes urgent. There's, there's a sense in which we must be prepared. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Well, she was a wonderful lady, I perhaps. Good looking, we don't know. But we do know one thing for sure. She loved this world more than she loved salvation. She looked back upon the city with fondness. As they were fleeing, Lot's wife turned and, and looked at this beloved city that she loved in all of its glory, in all of its beauty and majesty, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Judgment came upon her because she was unwilling to lose her life. And Jesus says, if you do not consider urgently the matter at hand, then you will lose your life. Look there, verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. In other words, you have to die to yourself if you hope to live. And and perhaps you think yourself to be a Christian. Oh yes, I believe that fellow named Jesus. Oh yes, I believe he died and rose again. But friend, if you are not obeying him in his word, the clear teaching, uh, like for example, gathering every Sunday on the Lord's Day, that's pretty clear. Uh, Friend, you have no hope of eternal life in Christ. If you are unwilling to obey Jesus in small ways, friend, you will never obey Jesus in the larger, bigger ways in life. You have not counted the cost. But, friend, let me, cons- let me encourage you. Count the cost today. Follow Christ today. Die to yourself and you will live. But, friend, continue to live and indulge yourself in this world and you will be taken up with the whole lot of them. And this is what Jesus concludes with, isn't it? It is a frightening picture. That there is no uncertainty. The kingdom of God is coming. It is coming, friend. He tells two stories here at the end of 
the indiscriminate nature of the coming judgment. Two women grinding together, one's taken, the other's left. Two laying in bed, one's taken, the other's left. Where are they taken to? The, the, verse 37, the apostles say, where are they going? Where, are they, where did he take them to? It's be a wonderful place they're going. Where are they going? Verse 37, they're going where the corpse is. Because you see, where there's a dead corpse laying exposed, that's where the vultures are. Feasting upon the corpses of the dead people who died in their rebellion. Friend, we do not take these matters lightly. And that is why Jesus follows with this prayer of this persistent widow. And we don't have time to look at all of the, the various aspects of it, but we, we do see right out of the gate in verse 1 of chapter 18 that as Christians, we ought to pray persistently for Christ's just judgment to come. That when Christ comes, He is going to judge us justly, perfectly. And He, pray, he encourages His disciples to pray persistently, to not lose heart, to not give up, that Christ will return. This widow was begging for justice, begging that this whatever was happening to her would stop. And this is an argument from lesser to greater. If this wicked, unjust judge would give justice to this woman, how much more God when He returns? And many of us in here this morning experience tremendous injustice. We have faced injustice. And we, like the psalmist, cry out, How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? How long will You hide Your face from me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And my enemies say, I have prevailed over Him. Friend, let not the delay of Christ's return cause you and I to lose hearts. Rather, trust that He will come to set all things right. The reason as Christians we can't wait for that day is because that day is a day where everything will be exposed. That every lie will be made right. Every false deal will be made right. Every injustice that you have faced and that you have perpetrated will one day be exposed. This is why Jesus teaches us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That we don't take vengeance as Christians because one day Jesus is coming to make all things right. Tom Schreiner New Testament author and pastor writes this, we should not become practical atheists who cease to hope in God. If we stop praying, it is because we are beginning to think that God is not faithful, that He does not care, that He will not really help us out. But the real issue is not whether God is faithful, but whether we are faithful. We can count one thing, God will ultimately answer our prayers for justice. 
So keep praying, friend. Keep pleading that God's justice would be set right when the righteous judge returns. A number of years ago, when I was a student pastor, I had a a number of students come to me and say, Oh, Pastor Chris, I I hope that we uh, get to live a long life. I hope that we get to do all these things. I hope that Jesus doesn't come again anytime soon. And I I was kind of taken back by it for a moment. I said, why? Why are you... Well, because then we're going to miss out on so many fun things. Because He'll have come when we were in our youth. And I reminded these sweet sisters that when you live in this broken and evil and wicked world long, oh, you will be crying out for Jesus to come again. And I think perhaps as Christians, we, we don't want Jesus to come again because we love this world more than the world to come. Because really, if we were really honest with ourselves and honest with those around us, We actually love this world and the things of this world. We enjoy this world. And friend, I pray that your eyes would be open to another world. A world far greater than this world. A world that is not broken. That is not filled with disease and sorrow and death. But a world filled with life. We end this morning with this resounding question that Jesus concludes our text with. Will Jesus find faith when He returns? Will He find you rejoicing in His salvation that you received by faith? Will He find you ready, trusting continually that He is coming unexpectedly? In a moment's notice, He will come perhaps even today. Will He find you persistently praying for His return to come? Will He find faith? Friend, the question I have for you this morning, if Jesus was to return today, will He find faith in your house? Will He find faith in your heart? That is the question you need to wrestle with now and until that day. Let's pray. Father, these are not light matters. To consider judgment, to consider You to be a holy God who will not allow sin to perpetuate forever. That You in Your wonderful kindness will not allow wickedness to continue forever. But one day, oh a day we pray very soon, Jesus will set all things right. Oh, my prayer today is that those that are caught and ensnared in sin might repent and trust in Christ. My prayer is that those that have grown weary, that they would entrust themselves to this truth that Jesus is coming and He is coming quickly. And that we would persistently pray and find our hope solely in Christ on that great day. And so we pray, come, come Lord Jesus, come now. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, as we conclude our time this morning, we do so by singing a hymn, by reflecting on the glories of Christ, but also in a moment, 
celebrating new life. Sinners who have died to themselves and want to follow Christ through baptism. It's a glorious thing to hear. And in just a moment, as after we sing a, a few verses, you are going to get to hear the testimony of sinners that have been saved from the wrath of God by placing their faith solely in the finished work of Christ. Well, friend, let's stand and sing together this next hymn.